All right, well, good morning. So we've been in our series for the past few weeks. We've been in this upper room with Jesus and his disciples. And, and so pretty early on in the series, I think we've tried to establish for us just like the gravity of the situation that Jesus is about to willingly walk into the next day. And so, so at the same time, I, I want us to understand like the immense confusion that was in that room and, and that the disciples were experiencing. In fact, at, at different points in the discourse that we have up in this room, in these chapters, we see both Jesus and his disciples under distress. And so this dinner in this room, it's certainly a dinner of remembrance, but it wasn't much of a celebration. And instead, it was pretty solemn. And Jesus, he's trying to say goodbye and prepare them for the days ahead because it's about to get really rough. And at the same time, he's trying to give them this hope for the future because it's not always going to be that way. And meanwhile, the disciples, they're just continually perplexed and they're distracted and even sometimes dismissive. And so as we get towards the end of the time in their room, as we get to chapter 16, Jesus gets a little bit more direct with his disciples. And like Jim just read, beginning in verse 16, he says, listen, a little while and you'll see me no longer. And again, a little while and you'll see me. But some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says? Like a little while and you'll see me, you won't see me. And again, a little while and you will. And because I'm going to the Father. So, so they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We don't know what he's talking about. And so Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves? What I mean by saying a little while, you'll not see me. And again, a little while and you will. So he says, truly, truly, I say to you, you're going to weep and lament. And the world's going to rejoice. You'll be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. And so Jesus tells them flat out, like, really, listen. Really soon I will be gone. You won't see me. But just as quick as I leave, I'll be back. And listen, things are about to get tough, but don't lose hope. I will be back soon. And so despite the chapter's worth of conversations Jesus has had with them and the huge significance of everything he's been putting before them, these disciples, these people have been with him forever. They just still aren't tracking. And they keep focusing on all the wrong things. So like Jesus has spent all night trying to teach them these important truths like how to love like he loves or, or to tell them that the Spirit of God is coming to indwell them and give them power like never before. And instead of asking questions about who this Spirit is or, or to explore deeper this love that's so different, they're asking questions like, where are you going? How come we can't come? And when will you be back to see us? And, and so all of these questions are ultimately focused on how these things will impact them because all they seem to be focused on that night in that room is themselves. And did you know that people do that sometimes? <laughs> like, did you know that sometimes people can be obsessed with themselves and their own expectations and their own desires? And did you know that when our expectations aren't met, we often get angry or upset? Sometimes we go into denial. Sometimes we look to find fault. Sometimes we seek anger, uh, see, seek answers, and sometimes we just give up altogether and we lose hope. And so for Jesus that night, as he's looking at his disciples who he loves, he knew that tomorrow all of their expectations were going to fail them. But he wouldn't. 
And so he wanted them to focus on him and, the, and to trust him. And so he tries to prepare them and to give them hopes that even when things got really tough, because they were about to get really tough, that they wouldn't lose hope and they wouldn't lose sight of him. He didn't want to lose them and, and he didn't want them to lose hope. And so this morning, that's what I want to do for us. After hearing God's word this morning, I want all of us in this room or listening at home to focus not on ourselves or our desires or our expectations, but on Jesus, the one whose desires and plans are far greater than anything we could ever hope for or think to desire. And he always delivers. And he has the power to never come up short and who sees beyond our own expectations, even when we think we know best. And so I want all of our hope and expectations to be in him, not of him, because I think those are really different things. And I think we often get that wrong. And so I want our desires and expectations to be in Jesus, not of Jesus. And so Jesus, trying to teach this to his disciples and to prepare them for what's about to take place, he gives them this quick analogy, and he says it beginning in verse 21. Listen, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she delivers the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish. For joy for that human being has been born into the world. And so also you have sorrow now, but I'll see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take that joy from you. So listen, full transparency, I've never given birth. And come to think of it, neither have any of the disciples, so I don't know why this is the analogy that Jesus chooses to speak to this group of men. But I have heard plenty of stories of experiences of childbirth. I've sat through health classes where I've had to watch videos or hear the sounds that can come from that room. And I've watched TVs and movie shows, which never exaggerate. And so all of that to say, I think we're all capable of understanding the point that Jesus is trying to make as he warns his disciples that real sorrow is a real reality, but just because something's painful doesn't mean that it's not good or that good can't come out of it. And in fact, by using this analogy, he illustrates how much blessing and joy can be on the other side of something that otherwise would be nothing but anguish. The experience of childbirth, correct me if I'm wrong, without a baby at the end would not be anything we'd sign up for. And again, this is where I think my personal experience falls short because Laura and I haven't yet experienced all of the pain or the joy that can come from childbirth, though I'm sure, and I know Laura is looking forward to the day that we will. But right there in, in that statement, uh, our expectations or our desires is something that I want us to spend some time on this morning. Like this is where what Jesus is trying to ultimately get his disciples to understand comes into play. And it's this question that Jesus wants to have, um, he wants us to have a strong answer to. Here's the question. What happens when our expectations of God and our desires aren't met by him? Like Kyle and Laura, we both have expectations and desires of this life. But what will we do when our expectations aren't met by God? are our expectations of God or in him. And so here's what Jesus is asking as he's been teaching them and talking to them all night. What happens if your expectations, desires, if they're different than the plan that I have set in place? Will you trust me then? 
will you still follow me then? Even when you can't see me, even in the middle of sorrow, anguish, or pain, will you there trust that my spirit is with you and that I'm coming back soon? And with me, I'll bring joy that makes any suffering just fade out of sight and mind. And it's a joy that no one can take from you. Will you trust me when I make that promise? Will you trust that even though you have sorrow now, that Jesus will return and you'll see him and your heart will rejoice and no one can take that joy from you? That's the question that Jesus is trying to get them to ask. And the answer he hopes to lead his disciples to and us this morning is yes. So what happens when our expectations and desires aren't met by God? Will you trust him then? Will we look to him then? Will we hope in him then? And Jesus wants all of our hopes and expectations to be in him, not of him. And so, you know, by the time we get to this upper room, Jesus has spent three years investing into his disciples, and he spent all night so far trying to get them to see this question and to answer this question well, but it's really tough. And it's really hard to get ourselves to focus here when so many of our expectations and are focused on ourselves and when we really should be focused on him. And, and while I don't have much experience with childbirth, we already established that I have a lifetime worth of experiences of both misplaced expectations, but also seeing what Christ is capable of despite them. And so what I'd like to do with the remainder of our time is actually point us to another story in Scripture that deals with the same topic of where we put our expectations and desires. And so I want to show you a woman whose expectations just led her like all over the emotional map, but whose focus proved ultimately to be in the right place and on the right thing. And so with that, uh, we're going to look at 2 Kings chapter 4, beginning in verse 8. It's going to be up on the screen, but here's how the story begins. It says, one day Elisha the prophet went to Shunem, where a wealthy woman lived, who urged him to eat some food, so that whenever he passed that way, he would turn in there to eat. And she said to her husband, behold, now I know that this is a holy man of God who is continually passing our way. So let us make a small room on the roof with walls and put there for him a bed and a table and a chair and a lamp, so that whenever he comes to us, he can go there." Okay, so let's just stop real quick. All right, Elijah, the prophet of God, has a job. Overly simplified is to act as a mouthpiece of God. And so to speak for God. And in his day, there was no email or Twitter. So when he had to go speak for God, he had to travel there to do it. And so in his travels, there's this town, Shunem, and there's a place that he commonly passed through there. It's about 20 miles from where he lived. So back in his day, that was like a day's journey. And I think that's important for us to remember. And so in this town, there's a wealthy woman who sees a man of God. She recognizes who he is, so she opens up her home. She makes a place in her home for him to abide with her, okay? And so this is our story so far. So we pick up in verse 11. One day, Elijah, he came there, and he turned into the chamber and rested. And he said to uh, Gehazi, his servant, call the Shunammite. When he had called her, she stood before him, and he said, say now to her, See, you have taken all of this trouble for us. What is to be done for you? Would you have a word spoken on your behalf to a king or the commander of the army? And she replied, uh, I, I dwell among my people. So to paraphrase, she says, I'm good. Which, uh, just like pause for a second, a prophet of God says, ask for anything and it's yours. And in response, she says, nah, no thanks. 
And so I don't know about you, but for me, I don't think that this is how I would respond if the prophet of God said, ask anything of me and it's yours. I don't think I'd say I'm good. I haven't learned that contentment. The number of Amazon and Home Depot shopping lists I have. um, Anyways, So, so he said, what then is to be done for you? And so his servant answered, well, she has no son and her husband is old. So he said, call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the doorway and he said, at this season, about this time next year, you'll embrace a son. And she says, no, my Lord, O man of God, don't lie to your servant. But the woman conceived and she bore a son about that time the following spring, as Elijah had said to her. So again, so far in the story, there's a woman of wealth and prominence who also proves to be generous. She opens up her home and her table and and she's a woman who recognizes God and his people. And she seems to be someone who's learned contentment. But when asked if there's anything she felt she was lacking, she said, she said no. But as we dig deeper, we learn that one thing that she desired was a son. But by her response to the prophecy given, it seems like this was an expectation that she had since lost hope in. So this woman had unmet expectations, and she had lost hope that they'd ever be met. And so my question is, how many of us have been there? Like so far, we've talked a lot about childbirth, the pain and the joy. But for this woman, up until this point, her pain had not been in childbirth, but in unmet expectations and the complete loss of hope that it would ever be an experience that she would get to have despite her desires. And so I know for many you can probably relate to this part of her story. Like so many of you, I'm sure, have gone through a time where you desired something or or even a child, but it wasn't happening or worse, you lost one before it was even born. Some of us will never experience that circumstance, but all of us will experience a time with just as deep a desire and just as severe a loss or an unmet expectation. Unmet expectations challenge us to the core and can be painful, but in those times, Jesus seeks us, seeks to teach us to place all of our expectations in him and to trust him instead of making our expectations and desires of him. And as we continue to read this morning, we get to see that when we trust God, he doesn't always meet our expectations, but he more likely is to exceed them. And God's the one with the power to make good on his promises and to do the things that we could never have expected. And it's always better than anything we could have dreamed to imagine, let alone desire. But in order to get to that joy, we often have to persevere and trust him through the suffering. And so our story continues in verse 18. When the child had grown, he went out one day to his father among the reapers. And he said to his father, oh, my head, my head. And the father said to his servant, carry him to his mother. Isn't that normal? Dad, I don't feel good. Go talk to your mom. Anyways, so he goes to his mother, and when he had lifted him and brought him to his mother, the child sat on her lap till noon, and then he died. And so she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him and went out. Unmet expectations. The woman in our story had desired a son for so long without receiving one that she had given up hope altogether. 
And then God blessed her with this child of promise. And after years of experiencing and seeing the joy that comes after the pain of unmet expectations, God allowed this child of promise to die. Unmet expectations. No parent expects their child to die before them. To lose someone that they love so much, let alone someone that God promised to them. Yet there's so many stories and so many experiences that I've seen, and it's at this point in so many of those stories that I see people just lose hope and abandon the faith. So many testimonies of people who have walked away or rejected God because their expectations of him weren't met, and so he must not be who he says he is, or he must have lied. We set ourselves up for pain, and we set our faith in God up for failure every time we make expectations of God instead of placing all of our expectations in him. But we do it all the time. And so in John chapter 21, we see what happens to the disciples and their faith after Jesus' death. See, at Jesus' crucifixion, there was an awful lot of unmet expectations. So many people thought that Jesus was going to overthrow the government of the time and usher in this new Davidic era for his people, but instead he just died on a cross. And he was gone, and with him the kind of freedom that they expected vanished. And so what did the disciples do? We see in John 21 that many of them just went back to what they were doing before. Simon Peter, who denied Jesus three times, just went back to his boat, went back to the job that Jesus had called him out of, went back to what was comfortable before, and many went with him. The disciples, heartbreaking. When we make our expectations of God, we set ourselves up for failure and disappointment. When we expect God to do what we want him to do, very likely we'll think that he let us down, that he lied to us. But I think when we listen to the promises of God and when we place our focus on him and place all of our expectations, desires in him, he never lets us down. I've said this before, I say it a lot, but God always makes good on his promises. He always does what he says he will. And if you trust that and make room for him in your life, you'll be amazed at the things he'll do for you and he's done for you that you've never expected or would have. So I just turned 29 this week and I grew up in the church, but I didn't come to put my expectations in him until sometime in high school. And the reason for that is because in my youth, I had so many expectations of God, and I was angry with him because none of them were met. My home life wasn't what I desired or expected it to be. I wasn't as popular as I expected or desired to be. I didn't have the relationships I desired or expected, and I certainly wasn't the person that I expected or desired to be. And so I blamed God, and I was angry with God, and so I concluded that he must not be who he says he was that he must be lying to me. And so I lived like the disciples who just went on with their lives as if they had never met him at all. And like the disciples, when I couldn't see Jesus, I lived like he wasn't there. And like the disciples in that time, life felt empty and, disappoint and a disappointment just all the time. But who wants to live like that? But the Shunammite woman in our story she shows us a different way to live in those moments. So let's read her response when her expectations fail her in verse 21. 
she called to her husband and said, Send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys that I may quickly go to the man of God and come back again. And she said, uh, and, he, and he said, Why will you go to him today? It's neither new moon or Sabbath. And she replies, All is well. Then she saddled the donkey and she said to a servant, Urge the animal on. Do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. When the man of God saw her coming, he said to Gehazi, his servant, Look, there's, a Shunam- there's the Shunammite. Run at once to meet her and say, Is all well with you? Is all well with your husband? Is all well with your child? And she answers, All is well. So the woman loses her child. She loses her child, the child that she had lost hope in ever receiving, but given by promise. And God takes him away, and I have no idea how I'd respond to that. But for many in times like these, that's the walk away moment. This is when they determine that they must know better. This is when they believe that God's abandoned them or lied to them and they decide to live life their way because they've made so many expectations of God and he's failed them. The disciples walked away, but the woman drew closer. And what's amazing to me is that it's in this moment that she's able to say that all is well. Like, how do you say all is well after losing your son? How do you say all is well in a broken home? How can you say all is well when you've lost your job, when you've been trying for a year to find a home and it's not working, when you feel alone for years and you've been praying for that person to come and they haven't? How can you say all is well when the doctors have given you that diagnosis and it's not good? How do you say all is well when you can no longer see God? I think what this woman shows us is that we can no, when we can no longer see him, that's the time that we go after him. I think what this woman teaches us is that when we don't understand what's happening or why it's happening, that instead of thinking that he's abandoned us or lied to us, that we can recognize that maybe we just don't understand yet. And so because of that, we should pursue the one who can give us that understanding and the one who has all the answers to our questions and, and the one who doesn't lie but reveals all truth. And I can't stand up here this morning and tell you that every time you feel as though you're pursuing God, that he'll give you all the answers you desire. That goes against everything I'm trying to preach this morning. But I do believe, and I have experienced, that when we pursue him, he's there. Because he never left. And more when we go to him, we aren't going to someone who makes his disciples suffer just to suffer or as a punishment. But we go to a merciful and faithful high priest who made propitiation for our sin, who himself suffered when he was tempted, so that he can help those who suffer and are tempted themselves. That's Hebrews chapter 2. And so we have in Jesus someone who understands our suffering because he suffered. Jesus knows what it's like to lose loved ones. Jesus knows what it's like to be betrayed, be betrayed by those who are closest to him and rejected by the ones he loves. He knows what it's like to feel alone. And God the Father certainly knows what it's like to lose a son. We have a God who knows our suffering because he knows suffering himself. And the suffering of his people is never without purpose, and it always leads to something greater, even when we can't see it. We have a God who places joy on the other side of suffering when we place all of our expectations in him. Christ's suffering led to the salvation of his people and the exaltation of him as king of it all. 
And his suffering unlocks for us a joy that no one can take from us. And so your suffering, it has purpose, whether it's sanctification, which means making you more like Christ, or or testing only to prove his faithfulness, or yours, whatever it is, the good news is that because of the resurrection of Christ, you know that all of it works out in the good, for the good in the end. We just have to trust him on the way there. And so when Jesus doesn't meet our expectations, we, shouldn't put our, we should put our expectations in him and pursue him like the woman in our story does. So listen to what happens next, chapter um, 4, verse 27. And when she came to the mountain, to the man of God, she caught hold of his feet. And Gehazi came to push her away, but the man of God said, Leave her alone, for she is in bitter distress. And the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. And then she said, did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, don't deceive me? He said to Gehazi, tie up your garment and take your staff in your hand and go. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. And if, you, if anyone greets you, do not reply and lay my staff on the face of the child. Then the mother of the child said, as the Lord lives and as, your servant, uh, as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So he arose and followed her. Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the face of the child, but there was no sound or sign of life. Therefore, he returned to meet him and told him, the child has not awakened. Now, when when Elijah came into the house, he saw the child lying dead on his bed. So he went in and he shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. Then he went up and laid on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, and his hands on his hands. And he stretched himself upon him, and the flesh of the child became warm. Then he got up again and walked once back and forth in the house and went up and stretched himself upon him. And the child sneezed seven times, and the child opened his eyes. Then he summoned Gehazi and said, Call the Shunammite. So he called her. And when she came to him, he said, pick up your son. She came and fell on his feet, bowing to the ground. Then she picked up her son and went out. And that's where the story ends. It just moves on. No clear explanation. But I think that the mother in the story teaches us a lot. The mother in her story had unmet expectations, and she lost hope in something that she desired immensely. But God surpassed her expectations, and he brought life to a hopeless situation and gifted her with something she didn't think was possible. Yet years later, that gift was taken from her, and there's no way to get around how painful and agonizing that experience must have been. That was real suffering. Yet at the same time that her expectations of what this promise would mean for her was torn away. She sets an example for us in how to respond. And so instead of allowing her anger to push her further from God, she pursued him. And instead of rejecting or denying God, she came to the feet of his representative. And instead of burying her son and trying to go back to the life she had before, she placed her son in God's hands by laying him in the bed of his representative while simultaneously making her desires known. And so the Shunammite woman had no expectations of God, but she placed all of her expectations in him. She recognized that only he had the power to control the situation. She even made it clear when she wasn't pleased with the outcomes. And she believed that God had the power to raise her son from the dead. That's why she didn't bury him. 
and she was willing to get on the ground and cling to his feet and ask him to do it. She trusted in him and that he would make good on his promises to her. And so the Shunammite woman was asked to trust God even with unmet expectations, and I think she said yes. And because of that, the story ends with her receiving a joy that not even death could take away from her. In her story, we find one of a son being miraculously born to a woman. In this story, we find a son being taken far before his time. And in this story, we find a resurrection that leads to a great joy. The story of the Shunammite woman shows us how your faith doesn't protect you from suffering, but it does tell you where to place your hope in the midst of it. And it reminds us that God makes good on his promises even when we can't see it and it's hard to believe. And so our portion of John chapter 16 for this morning, it ends with Jesus saying this to his disciples and to us in verse 23. In that day, you'll ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. So Jesus tells his disciples they don't yet understand the suffering that's about to come their way. And their expectations of Jesus are going to fail them really soon, but Jesus promises that he will never fail them and he will return. And when he does, all of that suffering and all of that sorrow will turn to a joy that's so far beyond anything that we could have expected or desired. And despite all the questions they had had and all the misunderstandings thus far in that upper room, on the day he returns, all of their questions will be answered. And instead of asking him question after question, they begin making request after request for Jesus to continue to surpass their expectations and desires because they'll, they'll recognize what a joy it is to experience these unmet expectations because what God has planned surpassed anything they could have imagined. So as I prepared this week, I prayed over this message and my desire for all of us would be that we would remove any expectations we have of Jesus and replace them by putting all of our expectations in him. Because I don't know what he has planned for my life. I know it's going to involve suffering. He told me that already. I've experienced some of it already. But I also know that he's with me through it and he'll lead me through it to an end and a future that's so far beyond anything I could ever imagine myself. And so Jesus asked his disciples to trust him even though they're suffering now because through that suffering would be, would be born a new life and a joy that no one could take from them. And we see that at first their answer to this question proved to be no until they experienced the reality of the resurrection for themselves. And at that point, at that point, that no was revived into a yes. And at that point, their faith was lit on fire to the, and it led to the place that we are as a church now. Like the power of the resurrection is the power of life and hope and faith. And there's a fly. And so that's what I want for us. I want any no's that we have in our life when Jesus says, will you trust me to be a yes because we see the power of the resurrection. He did it for the Shunammite woman and her son. He's done it for all of us. He did it for himself. We can see that he's a God who makes good on his promises. 
And so seeing and being a part of the reality of the power of the resurrection and seeing that we have a God who makes good on his promises, I ask you this morning, will you trust that even though there's real sorrow now, that Christ is leading you to a joy that no one can take from you? I hope your answer is yes. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for stories like these, not just the upper room where we get to see that even your disciples were confused, even your disciples didn't always understand, even your disciples would say no when you asked them to trust. But thank you that we also see the power of the resurrection, how it brings life to dead situations. Lord, in the story of the Shunammite woman that we see, that you make promises and you keep them even when it doesn't meet our expectations of how, when, or why. And so I, I pray, Lord, that after reading both of these and understanding who you are and what you've done for us and what, what promises you've made, that even in the midst of suffering, we would trust you, that we would see that you're with us and see that you're coming back to us with a home and a future that's so far beyond and that that would lead to a joy that we can experience now that no one in no circumstance can take from us, that we can say all is well even in the midst of suffering. So we ask these things in your name. Amen.